This week on the Tiara Talk Show, I'd like to welcome Assistant Artistic Coordinator on Atlantis, The Lost Empire, Kirk Bodyfelt to the show. Welcome, Kirk. Hello. Hi. Hey, I've heard all about you by Chris Jenkins, who was Artistic Coordinator on the whole entire film, but he sent me that really cool cool picture of you guys during Halloween as as a mini me and um, Dr. Evil. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Chris was both my boss and absolutely my mentor there as well, uh, <laughs> as far as my uh, continuing developing career there. Um, and yes, we, we had a couple uh, good Halloweens. Um, he's uh, <laughs> exceptionally short and I'm exceptionally tall. So um, yeah, he was, uh, he was mini me and I was Dr. Evil. And then I think a year after that, we were Batman and Robin, with, of course, him being the short Batman and me being the extremely tall Robin. (laughs) I want to see that picture now. I was like, when I saw the Dr. Evil, I was like, okay, I got to interview Kirk about this, even if it's just questions about the picture. I will send you that as a follow-up, I promise. (laughs) Yeah, what did everybody think? Like, I can't even imagine, like, Halloween sounds so much fun at the Disney Animation Studios, and I've been lucky to see some photos. I know not all of them are online, but it seems like you guys would have a swell time <laughs> just yeah, getting that, together. I, mean, I went over to Chris's at the crack of dawn because, I mean, I have no experience with makeup, and we were doing the skull caps and the fake noses and then got in the costume, so that was a lot of work. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, so we just showed up and, and it, it scared everybody. I think Chris... Um, had the ability to take his shoes off and actually put his knees in there. So if you literally were knocking on a door and somebody opened it, he would be at the correct height of mini me. So we had, (laughs) um, but um, I'll also say that nothing topped Florida. Halloween might as well have been like a religious holiday. The studio would just shut down for the day because it was such a huge deal in terms of the costumes and people bringing in their families. It was, it was a non-productive, but very exciting day. There was nothing fake about that fishbowl. I mean, that was literally where production was being done. And um, I was the digital manager on Mulan. So uh, the the fishbowl was usually the effects department and the CGI computer graphics department. And that's the team I was managing. So, um, you know, we'd be in the middle of a meeting and then kind of you sense something out of the room, you look behind you, and of course there's a hundred people staring down at the top of your head. Uh, uh, I was I wasn't based in Florida from Milan. I just was a visitor, so I wasn't quite as used to being the, uh, the gorilla in the cage of everything you're doing right now is being looked at by a large tour group. But um, yeah, <laughs> you know everything that was not in any way a, a fake setup. Nobody was animatronic. Those were all really people there, really working on the features. That was the fun part of going to Hollywood Studios because it really was an active studio, especially the the animation building. I I remember, you know, seeing things being made for Treasure Planet and Brother Bear, Lilo and Stitch. I I remember seeing it and I felt so sad to know that they were going to take that out. And, you know, they removed, I think they removed everybody by 2004, 2005, right? So like right after Brother Bear? Yeah, I mean, the history of Florida was they, you know, they did a few shorts out there. They did the Roger Rabbit shorts. And then for the most part, they would do like maybe 10% of each of the features. So there would be a small animation crew, a small cleanup crew, a small effects crew. And then um, they grew in size. And Mulan was the first film that it was a reverse of that. And 90% of it was done in Florida and the rest was done out in California. So, um, Mulan and Lilo and Stitch and Brother Bear were the three features that were done out there. And uh, Brother Bear wrapped at the end of 2003, and that's when I was out there. And yeah, you're right. In early 2004 is when 
Uh, 3D animation was just becoming the, the new big thing, and Disney downsized the 2D uh, scope of work they were doing, and Florida kind of, you know, unfortunately fell victim to that. Well, believe it or not, we had a crude version of uh, video conferencing. We literally were able to do meetings via uh, video conference. I would go out there (laughs) probably once a month for a few days to work hands-on with the team um, because, you know, they were building off a lot of the technology and tools we created out here in California. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, like we had created the herding software for the Wildebeest Stampede and Lion King. But then, you know, the next evolution of that kind of became the the Hun Stampede. Um, So it was working with the CG supervisor and the team just kind of helping to develop what's the scope of what we want to do in this movie, what can we manage to do, what can we afford to do, and um, just, you know, going out there for key moments for key director reviews or just to kind of work with the team hands-on. So, um, so it was, you know, it was because I was doing that concurrently with managing Hunchback and Hercules and Tarzan out here. So it was a, it was a full dance card, but um, I always loved going out to Florida. And when the opportunity came up to move out there to work with them on Brother Bear, um, it was, uh, you know, not, it was hard to pass up. Yeah, that was all back to back. When you mentioned like Tarzan, Hercules and Hunchback and Mulan, that was all back to back. So yep. how did you kind of juggle it all? Well, um, I was starting in um, starting in 94. I was in a position, I was the manager of uh, the digital production team. So I handled all of the main films going on in California. So that was, you know, and again, one would start, one would fall off, one would start, one would fall off. So that was pretty much Hunchback, Hercules, and Mulan concurrently. And then when Hunchback would finish, that's when I would start working on, um, uh, let's see, what would be, oh, Tarzan. Um, so, you know, it was, it was a very busy time, but I was mainly working with the small team, uh, of digital artists who were creatively working with the directors on, you know, what, what is the, what's your goal for this film? How are we going to use technology in your movie to create something that we can't do by hand? Or are we going to develop something new? So, you know, for Lion King, it was the wildebeest stampede. You know, the idea of that we need to have 800 wildebeest on frame at the same time. There is no way to do that by hand. So to kind of develop the herding software, the developing the look of the wildebeest and how to get them to fit in the 2D universe, um, you know, that was the really technical hands-on aspects of it. And then a lot of my job was, okay, my digital team, they're brilliant. They're creating these processes. How do we get this to fit in to the traditional world of animation? You know, how do we interact with the 2D artist. Um, some of these scenes are going to be led by a 2D artist who they'll draw the characters on a 2D layout. And then we have to scan in that layout, build it in 3D, and we have to have the wildebeest, you know, steer around these other characters. Or sometimes maybe the wildebeest would lead and we would just have to leave pockets for the animators and then they would take our printouts and uh, add in the 2D characters. So that's when it was a really exciting time to be there because every film had its new digital thing it wanted to do so a lot of my job was working with my team on how much can we handle what can we do and how do we fit it into this uh you know largely traditional pipeline i would say like for people who don't understand what was happening during that time the studio was really popping because you know you had the steamroll effect of little mermaid aladdin and beauty and the beast and lion king and i feel like a lot of people don't 
praise the films after like Lion King and on, like right right before Lilo and Stitch and Brother Bear came out. There's like this this gap of people know the movies and they remember seeing them, but I don't think they're praised as often, which is another reason I, I really wanted to have you on the show because the 20th anniversary of Atlantis, The Lost Empire, which is one of my favorites of the movies during that break of time, um, it I feel like it doesn't get the praise and, and love it deserves from being way, pretty much way obscure from the Disney um, setup that usually is the stereotype that people usually make fun of or, you know what I mean, they, they think of when they think Disney, which is not a bad thing. But they, you guys kind of directed to a different different story, different set of characters. And it was interesting because the more I learn about this project is that a lot of you came directly from Hunchback because everybody had so much fun on that project. Almost everybody, from what I understand, just kind of jumped on board the Atlantis wagon. So was that what it was like for you? Or was there like a different process of jumping on board to be a part of the film? Uh, Really good question. Um, I luckily was definitely part of that team. Um, this was actually my third go around with Don Hahn as producer and then Kirk Wise and Gary Trousdale as directors. Um, I first started at Disney Feature Animation in early 1991. I had uh, moved down from the Pacific Northwest. I went to USC Film School and um, majored in film production and there was no animation program there, but I still took every animation class that I could. I had kind of a background in, in stop motion and claymation all done on my dad's super eight film camera. Cause you know, this is ancient history of course. And, um, one of my friends at SC, uh, had tempt at Disney feature animation, uh, as a cell checker on little mermaid through a temp agency, which sounded like a great summer gig. So when I was uh, about to graduate, I I reached out to her and she hooked me up with the uh, same temp agency and called them up and uh, by some miracle got in for, I was a temp for a temp at uh, Disney Feature Animation, the technology department in Glendale and literally just filled in for a week, helped out with orders and phone duty and all that. And um, so I did that. It was over. Um, About two weeks later, I called back the offices to thank them and Apparently they liked me more than the other temps, so they brought me back, and I, I temped there for a um, for a few months, and then in January of '91 was when a little film known as Beauty and the Beast was entering production. So I had you know met with HR and gotten that resume in there. So when they geared up, I got hired as a production assistant in the cleanup department. So I was shooting all of the animators rough tests and the cleanup animation tests on the good old Lion Lamb three quarter inch video uh, system, which was again, ancient technology by now, but um, that was my first gig there. So that was again, Don Hahn producing and Kirk and Gary directing. So I did that. Um, after that, I was a production assistant shooting the effects uh, tests for Aladdin and then um, continued working there and pretty much hit all the features. So. My second go around was Hunchback, and that was working as, uh, again, the manager of digital production. So for that one, the main thing were the uh, the crowds uh, that filled uh, the Notre Dame uh, courtyard, um, various digital effects and all that. So that was the second time I worked with Kirk and Gary. And that's also when I started working with Chris Jenkins because he was the head of effects on Hunchback. 
So a lot of what he was doing and our digital work were overlapping. So um, I worked closely with him and really, uh, you know, really got to know him well and we worked closely together. And um, when Atlantis started, he was the artistic coordinator. And by that point, our films had gotten so big that they had introduced an assistant artistic coordinator position. And traditionally, that type of role was an effects artist or some sort of other artist uh, who would kind of rise up to that position. Um, I'd been there and worked on four or five movies and a lot of digital production, but I was not a traditional artist. So Chris was absolutely instrumental on taking me on board, really talking to the show and saying, look, I know this isn't kind of the traditional background for this type of role, but I know Kirk and um, you know he's been there a long time. It's really helpful. So he really helped promote me. Uh, uh, and even though I'd worked with that team before, it was, you know, you really had to prove yourself there. So he really gave me the opportunity. So um, once I started on that, it was working directly under him. Um, one of the things that Chris talked about during his interview with you was saying that, you know, at, at the time, the studio was definitely very heavy on accountability, that there was, um, I think, a closer eye on budgets and schedules and all that before. And I think it was a combination of, you know, budgets had continued to go up. And, you know, we were now working with a lot of 3D film competitions. So, you know, we we had a generous budget on Atlantis, but it wasn't endless. So, you know, from the get-go, there was definitely the feeling of, okay, here's your pile of money and effort, and um, you have to kind of show us how you want to spend it, and we have to kind of track to that. And um, I think a lot of the artists there, you know, were loving that, because I know I heard Chris express it. It was kind of, you know, frustrating to have the numbers. Because of my background, I kind of was the one to say, hey, you know what, I'll run with this. Give me the numbers. I'll total it up and I'll translate it to like the, the artistic aspects of it. So it kind of came down to you have you know this amount of money for your animation and for effects and for digital. And then it became uh, how do we find out how best to spend it? Um, and um, a lot of that kind of manifested itself with coming up with the, hey, directors and producer, we um, here's what we have to work with. Please tell me what's most important to you in terms of effects and digital elements and what you want to, what, what's important to you. And then we can start putting together a plan of, well, here's where we want to spend lots of time and lots of money and lots of effort. And then here's where we need to scale back a little bit just so we find the right balance of everything. So again, to a pure artist, I'm sure that sounds very boring, but but to me it was, the opportunity to say, okay, look, let's get in here, let's start figuring this out and lay out a plan that we can all live with and and then just trace it along the way to make sure we're on track. And that way we don't hit a point of you're, you know, 50% through the movie, you've spent 75% of your budget, and you're suddenly having to go through and make a bunch of radical cuts to things that nobody wants to do. I think it was really exciting to, like you said, to try something new and different that, uh, you know, that by not having musical numbers and having it be more of kind of a comic booky adventure that it was something new and exciting. And again, it was with a very tried and true team. So once we got started on it, much like the exploration team in the movie, it's like, hey, it's a ragtag group, but we've all worked together before. We, you know, we knew each other. Well, that's actually, I'm gonna back that up because that's a dumb analogy because it's like the team that worked together is the ragtag team, and that's not true. So <laughs> rewinding. Um, it was really an exciting opportunity to get to work again with the team that um, had been very successful in the past, uh, but to kind of take it in new exciting directions of something that is more of an adventure, not your traditional Disney musical, 
Um, and I think, you know, the studio was very excited by it. And at the same time, you know, there was a certain risk factor to it, which is why I think they wanted to, you know, make sure it didn't get out of control in terms of budget and scope and everything. Um, but, you know, again, it was a really smart team of people. And I think one of my favorite examples of, of how we wanted to increase scope and have it look great and initially seemed like it was a major challenge was, um, you know, Chris had talked a little bit about um, the CinemaScope aspect that um, very early on the thought was, well, we really want this to be cinematic and a cinescope ratio is just a great way to do that. And that set off a lot of concern about, well, geez, we've got to now like buy different paper. We have to buy cinemascope ratio paper and all the, you know, the, the drawings are going to be larger and wider. And there was a lot of talk of all the additional monitors we'd have to buy. So that was a real sticking point for a while. And then some brilliant person, I wish it was me, but I can't take credit for it. I think said, you know, kind of like a regular square television, if you letterbox the top and the bottom, it's the right ratio. You can use the same paper. You can use the same monitors. The image is going to be a tiny bit smaller, which probably gives you less pencil mileage, and that should work. So, you know, that's the sort of smart solution of, well, this could have been a real big sticking point. But, hey, you know what? Here's the solution that works. So I think, you know, uh, just having that kind of creative way to figure out, um, you know, here's what the goals are. How do we achieve it but not break the bank was what I really liked about the job. Can you walk me through like a typical type of week of working on a scene or working on a specific segment of the story? Like what was the process that you would have to do as the assistant artistic coordinator to help Chris and the rest of the team kind of complete a scene? Well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll start off kind of one step back in terms of like when it was, you know, after we had kind of gone through, here's the here's the goals. We want to have the Viathan character. We want to have lots of digital characters. We want lots of digital effects. You know, after kind of coming up with a laundry list, um, I think the next big step for me was, um, you know, in the good old days of traditional animation, the layout department would create workbooks, which were these glorious 11 by 17 giant flip books that basically had a good, you know, solid sketch of what the background was going to be and the character blocking and um, literally have, you know, anywhere from maybe two to four different panels showing camera moves. So by that point, you had a pretty good idea of what is the scene, how active is the camera, how many characters are in there, and, you know, what's the layout. So, you know, again, I had already taken the budget and kind of broken it down into buckets per department per scene. So, you know, the opening of the film is really big, so I'm going to give a large bucket of effects hours to that. And here's one that's supposed to be smaller and simpler. So the first thing I would do when one of those workbooks would be done would be to start flipping through it and kind of look at, okay, this is supposed to be a, you know, uh, level five effects sequence and it's a level 10. It's out of control. It's crazy. So then I could start looking at it uh, and come up with proposals and work with Chris on well, what can we do to kind of pare things down here a bit. Um, and a lot of times it would come down to what suggestions can we do that will actually make a big difference in terms of pencil mileage or complexity that it's still giving the directors kind of the core of what they want. Um, like if it's a scene that's supposed to have a moderate amount, of moderate amount of characters in it and it was really overpopulated, that's where you start saying, you know, can we keep these two really large crowd scenes where you really get the sense of how large it is, but for these other three or four scenes, let's push the camera in a couple more fields and then we don't have to draw as much sound will certainly cover the fact of, you know, hey, it's still a large crowd because I hear people talking. 
But um, and that could that could apply to anything. That could be character population. That could be you know, uh, it, water is always very hard to draw. Is there a couple of these scenes where we can kind of tilt the camera up a few degrees and get the water out of field? Um, and uh, you know, one of the things again with this being traditional animation, you know, it was a obviously it was a it was a ragtag team of characters, so the character count was always high. So when you have things like light sources. Uh, within a scene, um, you then have to account for all these characters need to have these hand-drawn tones on them to kind of, you know, help sell the, the light direction. And that looks beautiful, but that's a ton of pencil mileage. So, um, like a good example of a way we had a sequence that was kind of too large in terms of effects and we brought it down was it's, it's after the whole Leviathan attack. And after they've kind of, you know, settled underground before they find Atlantis and there's a, the camp sequence and Milo's kind of telling his backstory, um, a lot of characters in there and the original version of it had, everybody had a lantern next to them and every single character was going to have to have these hand-drawn tones and it was just breaking the bank. So the, the solution we came up with was Milo's the one telling the story. How about he's there with his lantern, he's getting the close-ups, we do all the glorious hand-drawn tones on his face and everybody else is further back and they're listening, but hey, they don't have their lantern. So that was the way I think to kind of really keep the the core feel of, of you know, it's a dramatic, you know, sequence and Milo's really explaining himself and you're getting the core of it, but we cut out 80% of the hand-drawn tones. Um, and then again, some other brilliant person along the way kind of came up with a shortcut technique where, um, you know, all the drawings were still done by hand but uh, our cap system is where you could then scan in the artwork and all the inking and painting and compositing was done that way. And somebody came up with a kind of brilliant idea. If you take a character's silhouette and you make it opaque and you kind of double it and then shift it down a bit, you can kind of create kind of a little fakey fake outline of a tone. So you could still kind of get the feel that there was a really lot of hand-drawn tones in there, but, um, uh, in fact, it was it, it was uh, you know like a seventy five percent saving. So again, this is the sort of thing that some artists are going to be like, "Eh, this is boring." But this is what I just would jump into as far as look. I really want to help get them what they want, but find a way to to do it that they would find acceptable. And my other goal was always if I needed five cuts to be made to bring this thing in on budget, I try to go in with ten. So then it's like, guys, here's ten. What? what's important to you to keep and then we can go in and we can talk about it and it's a discussion as opposed to you need to cut these things or we can't get this movie done on time and budget did you have like a favorite part of the film that you worked on that you just thought was pretty amazing that you got to work on specifically well i mean one of the favorite sequences was the whole thing where Kida kind of merges with the stone towards the end just because it was such a, a cool sequence and took just so much work to kind of figure out how to get the right effect but um, I guess my, my claim to fame isn't quite as exciting, but one of the things that I took on was, you know, once you got to Atlantis, there were a large number of Atlanteans there. And we always wanted to have the presence of a lot of them there. But again, in terms of pencil mileage and animators, you couldn't really just always, you know, fill the screen with unique animation. So one of the, um, one of the things I was in charge of was, okay, let's look at all these sequences and find out what can we do to animate Atlanteans in the background doing kind of nice little subtle things uh, and then take those cycles and kind of place them and retie them and kind of create crowds of people. So 
it, it, it's pretty easy to see where it is, but there's you know a handful of sequences where you have your main characters in the front and the large numbers of Atlanteans behind them. So that's kind of me kind of help out to figure out you know what kind of cycle could we animate that would be kind of a keep alive but not be distracting. Um, at the time, we still had a studio in France, you know, a branch of our animation studio in France, and uh, the Parisians were the ones who were animating these background characters. So I kind of, that was kind of my pet project. So basically, I kind of set it up and explained, here's what we're after, here's the model sheets of characters, we need nice, simple little movements that I can go in and change the timing of and kind of cycle to create that, and, you know, kind of set that out, and then what came back is about half of it was right exactly what I needed, and the other half was, I think, somebody trying to take this and making a really exciting excitement and really having this unique character movement and animation that was kind of not usable because once you saw it once, if you duplicated it anywhere, uh, you know, it, it kind of revealed itself as, oh, look, that's a repeating cycle. So, um, but, I mean, and it was, for me, it was the fun mix of high-tech and low-tech because it's literally taking pencil drawings and it was me literally going to a Xerox machine and shrinking it down by a certain percentage and then on a, on a copy of the layout, posting the individual characters and saying um, what size they were shrunk to and then filling out a massive X sheet that literally would show the timing of all the, all the cycles and everything. So again, if you're not suited for that, it would probably drive you crazy. But I just was having a good time because it was, it's just was you know hands-on work. It's literally just kind of laying out a plan and figuring out how to kind of help populate these scenes without breaking the bank. And it was a lot easier to pay animators to do these, you know, one set of cycles than for me to take on the, the additional burden of position and retiming and all that. So again, not the most exciting, exciting effect, but it was, you know, that's, that's what I was doing. And it was, uh, uh, I, I felt like it was a real good contribution to help populating the city of Atlantis. What do you think was the most challenging part of doing the film? Because I, from the one thing that everybody could agree on was the tattoos on some of the characters. <laughs> the tattoos? Yes, that was a lot of pencil mileage. And it's also, it's one of those things where it's just, a tattoo is a fairly solid object. And, you know, everybody knows the, the wonder of 2D animation is the ability to have stretch and squash and all that. And those are two kind of competing uh, techniques. Um, yeah. I know at the time, you know, as digital technology is moving forward, there certainly were discussions of, hey, maybe we can find a way to actually map these tattoos as 3D elements onto 2D and get them to fit. But any sort of preliminary test of that, it just it just doesn't work because yeah. it's not just taking a digital element and trying to warp and bend it a little bit. You know, 2D animators are free to do whatever they want in terms of stretch and squash. And, you know, we were less cartoony of a show, but still, you know, when characters are moving fast, they're going to bend and stretch. And um, the ability to, to, to take a tattoo element with stripes or patterns and, and map that on there didn't work. So, yeah, from the cleanup department, um, that was a real challenge. I guess one of the things, one of the late breaking things for us was, and it's something that Chris touched on, and I think other people did too, that um, there was originally a completely different opening to the film, which was a gloriously animated, crazy effect sequence of a Viking ship out at the stormy sea with the Atlantean Journal, and they were trying to find the city of Atlantis. And they're attacked by this mysterious group of tentacles. It's the, you know, it, eventually you find out it's the Leviathan. And it was a gorgeous sequence with some of the craziest hand-drawn effects water I've seen. Um, and 
right about the time it was just being finished up, I wasn't in the meeting, but apparently it was determined this, that's just not the right way to open the movie. It's too cold of an opening. So it got cut. And, um, but I, I think one thing that wasn't mentioned was if you're really a, a good at sleuthing, I think at least one of the deluxe DVD versions of Atlantis when it, when it was originally released has that whole sequence on it. So if you go to try to hunt that down, you can see it in all of its glory because it was it was already completed. But we were suddenly faced with, okay, that's money we've spent. We're not getting a new pile of money, and we have to come up with a new opening of the movie. So I think the the new opening they created, again, it's kind of a cold opening that you don't really know the characters, but at least you have an idea of kind of a bit of a history to draw on. So I think one of the challenges was how do we come up with this new great version, a, a, a new great opening for the movie, but we have to kind of look at all the the pennies and nickels we'd saved along the way and and use them for this opening. So if you look at it, I think there's still a lot of really great effects and things in it, but we had to definitely find a way to, to balance out exciting opening versus we don't want to be pulling from other sequences uh, and have to simplify simplify them to do it. So I think that was one of the big late breaking challenges that came in was the how do we how do we quickly create this and do it in a way um, with the funds that we have because we did we did not find an additional uh, uh, bucket of money at the end of the rainbow to, to suddenly have a brand. <laughs> no, never. We all wish that was there, but it was not. <laughs> right, but you know, I think again just. The reason we were able to do that was just finding really smart ways to get what the directors want. And here's one other very specific example, and I'll give you a compare and contrast. Um, I was the digital manager on Tarzan, and the big thing we developed for that was the software called Deep Canvas, which was kind of the first time we were able to not only model 3D environments, but to actually come up with a paint program that allowed our traditional background painters to literally paint on a 3D surface. So, um, and again, that's something that, you know, grade schoolers can do at home right now, but way back in, you know, 90, gosh, this would have been, you know, mid, late 90s, that didn't exist. So, um, so it was a great tool, but it was very labor intensive and slow. And, um, you know, it, it came to maximum benefit when Tarzan swinging from the trees and the canopies are all 3D. But there was uh, an appetite the directors had to use for props and things. And there's a specific scene in Tarzan right after Kala saves baby Tarzan from um, the leopard. She runs across a rope bridge and that rope bridge was lovingly built in 3D with ropes and all the textures of the wood and the rope were all painted. Incredible amount of work. And, you know, as she's running across it, it kind of does a, you know, moves up and down a little bit, but it's an incredible amount of work. And, you know, the benefit was it looked great, but, you know, the it was it, well, not quite as much of a payoff as you want for the amount of work. Uh, similar scene in Atlantis. I think it's when the vehicles are originally arriving in Atlantis and are driving across the bridge. Needed the bridge to move. We did model in 3D. I think we just had a, a, a traditionally painted background went into our cap system, just warped it a little bit, you get the same effect and it's pennies on the dollar for sure compared to the approach we had to do for Tarzan. So I think there was just a lot of openness and willingness to say, let's find the smartest way to do this to make sure you're happy, but we don't have to you know, do an A-level amount of labor to get you an A-level amount of you know, visual payoff in the end. It was really different for kids my age at that time because 
we're getting Tarzan, we're getting Atlantis, we're getting Treasure Planet, we're getting a mixture of different types of styles. So it's not the same thing over and over again, and the different storylines. So that's what always made it so exciting. So to see that the 20th anniversary is right around the corner, it's crazy to think that. But what are your thoughts on on hitting this milestone? Well, I mean, I'm just very appreciative of those people who are a big fan of it. Because you're right, you know, it. Um, I think it did reasonably well wasn't the monster everybody wanted it to be but i know there's a pretty loyal following to it and um it was just a special project you know it's always hard for us those of us who worked on it because you know one of my favorite things about the movie is just the opportunity to get to work on it to be there at that time and you know i was really lucky i i uh i i didn't get to work on little mermaid um i did meet uh john musker and ron clements the directors, because they actually brought the film to USC when I was still a student there. We got to see it right before it came out, and they were guest lecturers. That's when I first met them. But didn't get to work on that one. But, um, you know, I, I worked on almost all the movies from Beauty and the Beast through Brother Bear. So, you know, it was just a great time to be at the studio. It was kind of the second golden wave. So, you know, it's always kind of hard to separate the end result of the film sometimes with just the working experience. But Atlantis, it was just, a, again, it was a great team. Uh, and so many of us had worked together before. And I think we all just were on board with, hey, this is unique. This is different. Let's knock ourselves out and just find a way to make this a really special movie and, and something people hadn't seen before. And a um, lot of challenges, but um, just a lot of excitement working on it. And uh, we're still very, very proud of it. So it's really exciting just to see, like, there's a – a whole series of interviews with people who worked on it. But I've got to ask, since October's around the corner, if you could dress up as any Atlantis character, who would you dress up as? Boy, let's... Uh, <laughs> I mean, Milo would be fine. Maybe, uh, well, Whitmore, I'd need a beard and all that. I think, um, oh, Rourke would be kind of fun. Because <laughs> I think it'd be... Because it's just the absolute opposite of my personality. That's what it's kind of fun to do sometimes. You would have to stay in character all day, though, and be like, hey, you got to follow my direction, something like that. <laughs> well, I was able to stay in character with Dr. Evil for a good long period of time, so at least I had a lot of practice for that. But, uh... <laughs> that must have been so much fun. I hope they find some film footage of that. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, that picture was very representative of the day that, I mean, literally, I think when we revealed the costume, um, they were in, we had these large war rooms, and uh, they had, uh, you know, big bay doors, you know, it was an opaque room, but big bay doors, so Chris and I lined ourselves up on one of the doors and just kept knocking incessantly, which really you never were supposed to do during one of those meetings, so they eventually opened the door, and just the look on their faces was, because it took a moment to kind of figure it out in terms of, we both have ball caps, and Again, Chris, already being short, on his knees with his feet, excuse me, with his <laughs> shoes in front of his knees, it took people to like, what is going on here? So we got to pull that stunt a few times and just uh, surprise people. So. <laughs> well, they can't fire you because of that. <laughs> oh, no, it's no, too funny. Too, I don't think you can get away with it. It was like, okay, all right, that was worth interrupting. Maybe once a year you get to interrupt a meeting and that was worth it. <laughs> yeah, you know, and Chris... In addition to giving me that opportunity, he was, again, instrumental in my next role, which was being promoted to the full artistic coordinator and moving out to Florida for that. Um, again, once again, you know, I think I'd done a good job in Atlantis and had a good reputation, but all of the other artistic coordinators had been the head of effects as a lead artist, and that was not my background. But I think 
the combination of I've been there for so many years, worked on so many films, and really, um, you know, that was produced by Chuck Williams and directed by Bob Walker and Aaron Blaze. And I knew them all, you know, from my past there. But I just think, again, him helping promote me into the role. I went out there, met with them, and I think it was a really good meeting of the minds because they were first-time producer and directors. And, uh, yes, it was my first time in that role, but I knew the studio – I think I'd really shown I could get in there and really help them achieve their goals and had it, you know, if I wasn't maybe necessarily doing the hands-on drawing and designing work, that's why you have a head of effects. That's why you have a, a CG supervisor, because I think it's letting everybody do their talents and just kind of that role was instrumental in just bringing everybody together and making sure everybody's in line with what the goals are and what the director's visions are. And again, it was just really exciting to, be, to just follow them around all day and be at all the different meetings and, definitely feeling like more of a, I'm helping you out here and helping move things along as opposed to, Oh, what's he going to complain about now? I think I was able to keep it on the, the positive side of things. Your, your last Disney project at the time was brother bear. So what are you currently working on right now? Well, brother bear was, I did 10 films at Disney feature animation in rapid speed, view the beast, Aladdin, Lion King, Pocahontas, Hunchback, Hercules, Mulan, Tarzan, Atlantis, and brother bear. And you can probably tell I've, I've got that list memorized so I can go through it so quickly. Um, and then after they closed down the Florida studio, uh, my wife and I moved back. Um, it was kind of an unusual time. That's when Disney was, was uh, transitioning to 3D animation, different management. They were less familiar with me. Um, and uh, once again, Chris Jenkins proved to be very helpful. He had moved over. Uh, to help start Sony Pictures Animation. So um, I migrated over there. I worked at Sony Pictures Imageworks and was the digital producer on their first feature, which was Open Season. Um, I stayed there almost 10 years. I got into producing. Um, the last thing I did there was I produced uh, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs 2. Um, and then after that, I, went, I did a three-year stint at Paramount. They were starting an animation studio. I got into some VR work. And I'm very happy to say that I am actually back at Disney, uh, but in a completely different angle. I'm at Imagineering and am the media and digital producer for the park expansion that's happening at uh, the Tokyo Disney Seas Park. Um, and um, obviously, that's all very top secret stuff. Um, I can't get into much detail there, but... If you search on any of the Disney park blogs, if you look up Fantasy Springs or Disney, uh, sorry, Tokyo Disney, whew, if you look up Tokyo Disney Seas Park Expansion, you can learn a lot about what's going on there. And what's really exciting is that I'm getting to work with some of the uh, former co-workers who didn't leave Disney like I did and who are still at the animation division and who are significant contributors to the media that we're working on. So it's kind of the best of the old and the new. I'm getting to still produce animation uh, in conjunction with my former studio, but to use it in all sorts of new, exciting ways, not just putting it on the screen as a movie, but like, it's a movie, and it's a ride, and it's, you know, it's all sorts of new developing technologies that are exciting and crazy um, so count myself very lucky. Love being back at Disney just at a different capacity. Thank you so much for being on the show, Kirk. I really hope that we can do another reunion in person for the official 20th next year. But this was really fun to kind of reminisce and hear your story. So thank you for being on the show today. 
Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to get to talk about it because, like you said, it's one of those where there's a little bit less discussion about it, but when uh, you get the chance to kind of go back and revisit history and uh, reminisce, um, I have nothing but positive memories of working on uh, this feature, and I'm really glad to see it's uh, still out there with the Nazi families. You just won the solid gold QP doll.